welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Loving your company today and thanks for the feedback. We have Paula Penfold, Simon Pound uh, and uh, Simon has really racked the nation up with this question. He's asked, he said that there, he has said that there has never been a better time to be born than now. Uh, someone's just texted, I'm crying with laughter. Um, so uh, text me, uh, 2101. Yes or no to that? That is our one question of the day. In fact, we're going to come back to that question. Uh, there has never been a better time to be born to be, to than be born right be now. Alive. I think it's be alive, which might be slightly different. I actually to be think alive? like you be alive. Okay, because be be born life expectancy is actually shrinking in America. So <laughs> all right, there's been, never been alive, a better time to being be a alive news consumer never than been a right time now. To be alive. Spain. Uh, into the final of the FIFA World Cup with a 2-1 victory over Sweden in the first semi-final in Auckland. It was a frenetic finish to the game. Spain opened the scoring in the 81st minute before Sweden equalised seven minutes later. And now all eyes are on the Matildas playing England in the semi-final Sydney. And it seems that the whole of Australia has gone Matilda's mad. They've captured the nation's heart like never before. The Sydney Morning Herald is wall-to-wall football. Matilda's merchandise is apparently harder to come by than a Taylor Swift ticket. So let's go to Sydney. Chris Calverley is president of Coogee United, the most successful football club in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Uh, Coogee United have women's teams in all divisions, including the newly formed over 30s division. Chris, welcome to the panel in New Zealand. Pleasure to be here. G'day, guys. And are you going tonight, Chris? I am going tonight. I've got split loyalties. I'm an Englishman by Mm -hmm. birth. My wife's Australian. And I've got one kid support in England and one kid support in Australia. <laughs> the anticipation must be immense, Chris, for every Australian, but even more so for everyone involved in women's football. It's been absolutely fantastic. The last month in particular, the, the, just the, the talk in the office, the, the, the talk in the schools. Uh, we really welcome everyone onto the bandwagon. Uh, those of us who have loved the game for a long, long time, there's plenty of room on the bandwagon, but it's just been fantastic. It's such a team to be proud of, the Matildas. They come from varying backgrounds with varying stories, uh, and they've just been an absolute delight to see progress. We've got a panel with us, Chris. Let's go to them as well, Paula. What is it? What's the X factor? Why are they promoting so much excitement, making people feel so good? They're just so so likeable. They've gone from a team where maybe people knew one person, knew the star, to we, we all know all of them now. Uh, and they're just so likeable as individuals. They play a nice, attractive way of football. Uh, I think there hasn't been too much success for Australia in the sporting environment for a while. So there's definitely... Some, some people want to get on board with the success uh, and hosting a tournament, as you guys know over there, it just gives you that coverage. It just gives you that excitement to have the newspapers put it on the front page. It really, really has yeah, brought the game forward by an awful lot. And we're seeing it in the community sport. We're seeing a lot more inquiries for people who want to play and it will really shape a generation of kids to come. There's something really cool uh, that's quite similar to the Rugby World Cup here and uh, our, our team there with the women where 
the men's teams often have so much stoicism baked into what they do and, you know, not letting anything away and not showing too much emotion. But it's that mixture of that kind of, like, um, passion and also confidence, which is so cool, which seemed to me to be absolutely perfectly present in that shootout with the Matildas, where (laughs) the the absolute winning confidence, you know, like McKenzie being, um, you know, missing that shot, but then walking straight back and racking the crowd up and just being so sure that they were winners. It was just, like, magic. Spot, spot on, and it makes them even more likeable. And I guess we see in the men's game, you're right, they're also media trained. They're also, the, the rewards are so high that perhaps people don't show their character. Uh, the way New Zealand just about won the, the Women's Rugby World Cup, you, you could see how likeable some of that team was. And it's very, very similar here. Mackenzie Arnold is an absolute superstar. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, England ranked fourth in the world. Uh, it's your country there, Chris, coming up against a side who are 10th in the rankings and in uncharted territory. What are you anticipating tonight? I think it's going to be won by the barest of margins, by the barest of margins. It's going to come down to to one moment. And I just think that England, with their experience, having been in two World Cup semi-finals, having been in the European Championship final, I just think England will get over the line. But it could be tighter than an Australian at a bar, but I'm going 2-1 to England. (laughs) And showing your actual loyalties while saying that you have split loyalties. Surely the home ground advantage is going to count for quite a bit for the Matildas. It, it, it's interesting. It's 75,000, 80,000 people there today. A lot of that, that team won't have played in front of that many people mm. uh, that often. And, and if someone freezes on that kind of stage, it could be disastrous. They, they need to have their 11 players or their 12, 13, 14, whoever will come on. They need them all to have the game of their lives tonight. But if That's I tell you I'll be back in them on Sunday. <clears throat> Uh, just picking up on that, uh, the, the, the levels of viewership numbers here, 75, 80, I, I understand that close to 100,000 fans will be at uh, Sydney's Olympic Park. Uh, in any sport, any code, any country, uh, have you seen anything like this, Chris? Yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate growing up on, on English Premier League football of seeing yeah. that kind of atmosphere, uh, and this is the closest it's been. We, we see it sometimes with the Ashes over here, with the travelling fans, but this is the closest it's been. This will be my seventh game that me and the family have been to. The atmosphere from the Colombian fans, the Korean fans, uh, the French fans, it's just been absolutely fantastic. And, and it's, it's the world game. It's the beautiful game. Uh, and it really has shown that in, in just, just how passionate all the fans have been. And did, did we miss a little bit of sports banter there when you said that the uh, Black Ferns almost won the Rugby World <laughs> Cup? Because I, I seem to remember them beat, beating England in the final, wasn't it? Did that banter just go right over our heads? I think I said you just about won it, but you definitely missed the, the comment about the barest of margins. But oh, right, right, right. <laughs> He's trying to be cheeky, isn't he? Got to watch these... Uh... Rewriting history at any time, right? <laughs> so who are you guys supporting tonight? Hey, that's a great question. Did you hear the silence? It's, Did you hear the silence? It's hard, hey, because it was hard to support the Matildas in the shootout, but um, they totally won me over. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's Australia. I don't care, great, to eh? be honest, but I'm just <laughs> loving, as you say, the beautiful game played by women. On su- in su- One of the things that makes me laugh every time um, women's sport comes to the fore and their incredible skill and speed and absolute brilliance at the game. One of the things that makes me laugh every time is that men are surprised by that. 
like, why? Why, yeah, why is that surprising? Well, I think <laughs> it's a little bit patronising. You, you, when you might be stereotyping a little, I, I've got a, a football club here with 21 teams and seven women's teams, and the, the quality of the football doesn't surprise those of us who see it on a regular basis. I'm so you're sure. right, there's still some old school mentality there, and, and this is helping to get through that. It's yes. driving the game forward. To my kids, this is just sport. This is a World Cup. They're not seeing this as women's sport or men's sport. We did a sweepstake from the first round and there's three of us with a team left in it. And it's just, it's just sport and it's just the passion and the energy and just the drama. There's nothing like this. There is nothing like this. Now, just finally, the level of excitement has reached political levels. Premiers are now arguing over public holidays and investment in women's sport. Do you think there'll be follow-through on that, Chris? The, the, to answer the second part first, the, the investment in grassroots sports needs to come. Uh, soccer or, or, or football is the, uh, the only major sport in Australia that's funded from the bottom up. We don't get any funding that comes down. It's the largest participant sport in Australia. So that funding needs to come. And FIFA have put some legacy grants out, and hopefully that will come. In terms of the politics and not mixing it, yeah, there's been talk about whether there'll be a day off. Whoever wins on Sunday, I'm probably taking Monday off. <laughs> Chris, it is wonderful to have you on the programme. Thanks uh, for joining us here. Kia ora to you and, hey, good luck. Thank you. Enjoy the game. Very good. That's uh, Chris Calver there, president of Cougar United, the most successful football club in the eastern suburbs of uh, Sydney there. 17 pass for the panel, RNZ National. Paula Penfold, Simon Pound joining me this afternoon. Now, the issue... And the nature of work has been a topic bubbling away. And it started with this. At least once a month I get out there and take the, the, uh, the shopping list off my wife and go out there and fill up the trolley. Not only is it an excellent way to get a bit of publicity with a National Party jacket on my back looking like the everyday man, it gives my wife a break and um, I get to understand what the, what the current prices are. National Sam Uffendale MP says the quip about his wife's grocery shopping is not sexist. I work 80-odd hours. It's just the nature of the role and probably something that all other 120 MPs will tell you. So I thought, well, what is the MP workload? And is this a chance to explore more broadly the nature of gendered or the gendered nature of work? Last month, Spain launched a new app to highlight the uneven way household chores are typically shared out between men and women. So let's go to a former MP, and with us is Catherine Delahunty. Catherine, kia ora, good to have you here. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Nice to talk to you. It's been a while. Yes. Look, 80-odd hours a week as a former MP. Is this, sort of, is this the sort of workload you'd uh, put in? I mean, we probably, if you add together travel and being in Parliament and then the fact that you're actually available seven days a week and have things to do at all times, it is a a big workload, but there's a lot of privileges that go with it as well. And that doesn't mean you're no longer a family member. (laughs) I think it's important to remember that. Well, I mean, I must say, I can I did recall because we had the segment on a show called Backbenchers, you know, going around MPs' offices. Uh-huh. I saw I saw the diary of I think it was then Backbench MP Judith Collins, and I just can remember thinking then, gosh, this is a long day. You had a breakfast meeting starting at seven thirty, going right through until nine p.m. or ten on some days. Uh, well, absolutely, and then often you're travelling 
um, especially listening to people the Greens. We used to travel in the... Um, any time we weren't in Parliament, we'd be travelling to parts of the country and you'd travel all day. Then you'd always have all-day meetings scheduled and then night meetings and then um, all the rest of it. But, I mean, honestly, Wallace, there are people who work harder than us. The people who cleaned Parliament, because we did an, an exercise with them a few years ago when I was there, these women that would clean Parliament, most of them were women, they also worked and they had day jobs and children to look after and then they started work at night and worked all night. I don't know that they ever really slept. And to me... I worked harder than I've ever worked in my life when I was an MP, but man, did I get rewarded for it. All that money, all that status, all that privilege and sense of importance. And I was grateful to the people who kept my feet on the ground and reminded me of that. You know, one of my sisters always reminded me that looking after children or caring for our elderly parents, um, she would just remind me, oh, that's all I've done in the day. And it reminded me of what's really important, which is actually the caring work that's underpaid the hard work that people do to keep our society alive is really important. And, and, and MPs need to check the privilege at all times, right. even though we do work hard. Paula. Kia ora, Catherine. It's Paula Penfold here. When you were an MP and working those really long hours, who did the supermarket yeah. shopping? Well, because I lived in uh, the Hauraki where I still live in the in the, valley, the Kauranga Valley, I wasn't home very much to do the shopping. I was in Wellington most of the time and then travelling back. My partner did a lot of the domestics work, but I did do it when I came home as well. I didn't think, oh, I'm doing it for him. It's whatever it takes to run a house. I mean, we live in a house where everybody does everybody does the chores. So it wasn't like it changed. It just I think he, during that period of time, he probably did more of them than me. And neither of us thought we were doing any, each other a favour because we didn't believe in the gendered nature of domestic work. So that's the issue here, isn't it, really, with what yeah. Sam Uffendale had to say. It's not, I mean, it's related to the hours of, of the week that he's working, but the fact that he sure. described uh, going to the supermarket as doing his wife a favour, it's the face palm moment. That's exactly right, Paula. I mean, I just found it really irritating because it's, it's the, you know, he's, it just shows his old guy dinosaur thinking and his idea that, you know, we've been kind to the little woman by helping out with the shopping. And I mean, it's 2023 and, and everybody needs to contribute to a household and, and do the work. Can I just jump in? As some, some texts have said, look, I do all the chopping of the wood. I do all the car cleaning and car vacuuming. Is that recognised? No, I do it without complaint. Oh, really? Well, actually, I do the, the wood chopping and car cleaning and the cooking, and so does my partner. And I think that every household's a bit different how they divvy it up. But let's not patronise each other by saying that it, you're helping the other one out by doing what are traditionally in the past women's work. And I think that's why people got up in arms, not because people don't do different chores or share chores, but the way that, that it's talked about was very patronising and, and very unfortunate. Yeah, that's making some really great sense, eh? Like, I love your point about, you know, real work is the caring work. Like, when we had our twins and I went back to work and the, you know, twins were a lot of hard work. And I was thinking, boy, I'm a bit lucky that the patriarchy invented work to escape all this childcare. Like, it very much is a setup there. But you kind of wonder with with, um, Mr. Uffendall, like, maybe he could use a couple of those 80 hours for some communications training because he's coming across as a right pillock, right? But the cool mind language. The person, on the show, please. Oh, right. So the person who comes through this quite well, though, is his wife. As like He actually went up in my estimation when he came out and said that he and his wife had sent a message to Kitty Allen 
um, sending their support when she had the crash incident. And I was like, well, that's that's a very you know classy and good move to do. And also, apparently, she gave him a hard time for saying this, and he said she put me in my place, which made me wonder maybe she should be doing eighty hours of MPing because she seems <laughs> to have some very good kind of ideas, and he could he could get out of there. Yeah, and Nairi in Epsom says, Wallace, let's recall, if Uffendale is working 80 hours a week, his wife is not sitting around drinking cocktails. Uh, she also has an equally heavy workload. Just while we have you here then, uh, uh, Captain, what do, you, what do you make of this uh, app launched in Spain? Um, because uh, the Spanish Stats Agency last year said just under half of women perform the majority of housework compared to just 15% of men. Do you think we need that sort of app in New Zealand? Well, I think there was a survey done in this country a couple of years about the gender native work, and we didn't come up, out much better than the Spanish. The reality is, although there's been improvement in um, men taking responsibility for domestic work, there's still extraordinary numbers of people, um, of women doing more work, because it's not just the physical domestic work, it's the emotional work, it's the buying the Christmas presents, it's organising the children's birthdays, it's taking responsibility for who's needing to be looked after in the family at the same time as doing all the other things. And some men do that very, very well. And I think increasingly young men um, do feel more responsible mm-hmm. for, for more than just the traditional role. But, yeah, we're still, we're still dragging the chain, and those surveys show that we've got a long way to go. All right, very good. That's Captain Delahunter there uh, explaining what goes into uh, an MP's workload. That's kind of a fair point there on the, the very, very last point that Catherine made. It is uh, in a moment of honesty here, you know, I do try my very, very best to, uh, you know, um, uh, be equal around the chores and that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, and you have your division of labour, you might be good at this. But one thing that Tabitha is extremely good at is that foresight into the planning of things, you know, the events that need to sort of be planned way in, way in advance that I just don't think about. Right. I'm sure the, the men in this room right here in the studio, the progressive thinkers that you are, are applying the fair share, applying yourselves to the fair share, your fair share of domestic labour. But it is those things that would, might not necessarily even occur to you yeah. that tend to fall on your lovely female partner. It is true. You know? This is true. Simon? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's specialisation and division of labour and most utility and stuff, but then there's also kind of, well, yeah, but it's a bloody hard grind, a lot of the stuff that falls to traditional uh, gender roles. Can I just quickly go back to that issue, though, Wallace, before we move on about yeah, the course. AT? If it is the case that, you know, Paula, and you've, you've seen the diaries of some of the backbenchers that you were referring to, if it is the case that they're working 80 hours a week in those ridiculously unhealthily long days... Why on earth, you know, how do we attract good people to politics then? Because why would why would you do that? That's just horrific, isn't it? Well, that amount of it was. It was just something that always stuck with me uh, when I'd look. The diary would be open there, and they'd go through the day. And I think it was Judith Collins. I also think it was um, uh, Judy Turner from. United Future, uh, finishing at 10.30. I thought, how do, you, how do you do it? And this is some years ago. I mean, I know, you know, Catherine's right. They're very, you know, they're well recompensed for that. And there are lots of people who are working really awful hours. But we want to attract good people into our Houses of Parliament. And they maybe need to address that issue. The panel, RNZ National, can I just come back to this question? I hadn't meant to, but it's actually provoked quite a storm on uh, text. Uh, Simon Pound, uh, Swan, Swandon, and he said that um, there has never... 
<laughs> Look at him swanning around. I think there, there, there has never been a better time to be alive than now. And I thought I'd throw that out to Panel Fano. They all know. Yes or no, text me 2101. We'll do a little snap poll uh, results in 20 minutes' time. And you said you want a chance to explain yourself. I think it was kind of funny. It's like point was that like the, the news never gives enough context. And I got half the point out and then it was gone. So that, that's a good one. But like I, I really do think that like, you know, that nightly news is the worst forum for, you know, getting really serious and interesting um, ideas advanced. And all it really has time to do is excite your fear response and then make you feel scared, angry and worried. And then it moves on to the next thing. So, you know, longer form media, slower media, deeper media, still good things, but the news. And people sit down to do their civil duty, and all it does is wind them up. But maybe we could offset that by a little disclaimer at the front that said, on any objective measure, you're the luckiest people who've ever been born uh, up until, you know, the last hundred years. Um, and we're going to show I, you some I, bad I, I stuff, but keep to, it, keep I, it I just want to come back to, I think we, we, we talked with an expert about this, that needs to be, there needs to be a, 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 a sense of emergency around today. Like, back in the 50s, you were lucky. Why? Because you had a future. Because today, they possibly don't. But we do have a future. And, like, I think the world's always well, been do ending. We? The world was ending. Like, there's this great book by Dan Carlin, um, who's the hardcore history uh, guy who's written a book called The End Is Always Near. And um, the point there was, like, you know, in the you know 50s, it was going to, we're going to run out of food. And then in the 70s, it was the population bomb. And then in the, you know, um, 60s, it was nuclear warfare. And then it was the Cold War and the Red Scare. And the world's always ending. Paula. And things always end up okay. Yeah, they do, but I I look at the pressures on particularly teenagers and young adults now who I don't blame them for having a sense of doom and a heightened sense of anxiety. When you do turn on the news or even your, you open your TikTok app, as they're more likely to do, and you see, you know, Hawaii and over 100 people now and many more probably to come in terms of the death toll, you see that those horrific images and then... I think there's a compounding effect because it's coming at you from every single angle. You can't escape it now. So, you know, in media, we're seeing people switching off because well, it's overwhelming. Well, 100%. Like, we, we don't watch the 6 o'clock news at home because I think it's actively bad. Uh, but we listen to the radio. We read kind of long-form stuff. We talk about the issues with our kids and stuff. But just feeling scared the whole time is not a great foundation for hope, which like you say, Wallace, like when people feel like they've got a future, they're more invested in cleaning up the world and helping to do things. So it's not about abrogating responsibility or like throwing up your hands and going, oh, well, it's all screwed. It's just is if we did have a bit more context where we said, yes, we're going to show you some awful things, but actually okay. most people had a good day. All right. Most uh, people are good. Okay. Life's good. Okay. You're safe. Okay. Simon, happy days pound uh, is uh, <laughs> on the panel. I want to ask you then, uh, keep them coming. Uh, is... There has never been a better time to be alive than now. Yes or no? Why? Why not? Text me. Yes, it is the best time to be born. The power of the point of power is always the present, with whatever that includes. Uh, Sue in Paraparaumi says a gigantic no, born into climate disaster and the collapse of civilization. You've got to be joking. Someone who says, spoken like a true entitled boomer. Never been a better time to be born than in about the mid-50s and just pulling up the stumps behind you. Uh, (laughs) Simon is right. Would any of us really like to go back to the pre-penicillin world? 
Yeah, like there's the, think about the food, travel, and opportunities you have versus Queen Victoria, who was the richest, most powerful, with most opportunity, biggest empire person in history. And you know, she lost so many children in childbirth. She had a, a life absolutely marred by illness. She couldn't eat, you know, like pineapples were this incredible luxury that cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in comparative money. And now we go to the pack and save and we have just unbelievable bounty and abundance and our children don't die, uh, you know, in the main. And it's like, what what could be better? If we could afford to buy it though, this is, there is, you know, I'm sorry to say there is lots of bad news Mm -hmm. and I think media has a responsibility and the research shows that it's not that people can't handle the bad news. But what they're kind of crying out for is also some solutions, which I yeah. guess is what you're saying. Maybe some hope provided with the facts. Or a bit of context. Okay. It's like, this is bad, but it's been worse. Right. It's someone, getting better. Someone says, no way. This is an outrageous notion. Our planet is in peril. Text me 2101. It is 4.32 and it is time for headlines.